Welcome to NeuroNoodle's Neurofeedback and Neuropsychology Podcast featuring our neuropsychologist Dr. Laura Jansen, Dr. Skip Wren, TechWiz Santiago Brand, and neurofeedback legend Jay Gunkelman. Our goal is to provide information and promote options for better mental health. This is an all-star cast that are more than happy to share their knowledge with you. My name is Pete. Before we start, we'd like to thank our Patreon business supporters and our show sponsors. Mary Tracy's Neurotraining Strategies offers a higher standard of EEG, QEG education to EEG clinicians, technicians, and neurofeedback practitioners with convenient online BCIA and QEEG certified didactic courses. Check them out at eegstrategies.com slash course hyphen neuro. Hey, the 6th Annual Super Brain Summit's coming up April 8th at Bradley University featuring Dr. Bruce Wexler. He's a psychiatrist at Yale Medical School. He'll discuss neurotherapeutics, how can we regulate the brain with computers. Register now at bradley.edu slash superbrainsummit. Please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts. It really helps get the word out. If they can't hear us, we can't help them. Okay, guys, uh, do we want to try any of those questions? says, can you do a video on leaky gut and leaky blood-brain barrier? Do you think these things would show on an EEG? I've also heard if you take GABA as a supplement, it will only have effect if you have a leaky blood-brain barrier. I'm interested to hear what you think of that. Leaky gut leads to inflammation, which is known to affect cognition and and brain function, right, indirectly. And so I would think that would show up on the EEG because it's affecting brain function. Now, how and could you identify it as leaky gut-related inflammation? I don't know. I'm going to defer to the other guys. Like, could you pinpoint it? I don't think so, Jay. I don't know that you're going to find anything specific. But, but the other thing is leaky gut, what's leaking is is also a, a, another circumstance. You know, right. I mean, right. you, you, you can have relatively healthy gut that's uh, got a leaky membrane, and that's not as bad as having I can uh, toxic, on that, that's uh, okay. toxic GI. Yeah. Yeah. Santiago? Sure. Yeah, go for it. Yeah. So... Uh, well, not not to provide medical advice, uh, so that's the disclaimer there. But disclaimer noted pertains to the GABA, uh, the GABA uh, with regards to blood-brain barrier permeability is based on the work of Dr. Datis Karashin. He wrote a book, a very interesting book called "My My Brain Isn't Working." And it's a really good book that talks about brain dysfunction from a uh, from a medical perspective, meaning leaky gut and diabetes and all these medical conditions that can cause inflammation in the brain. And what he says is that if you take GABA and you feel extremely calm, it's because you have a leaky uh, a leaky blood brain barrier. The molecular structure of the GABA it's small enough to allow it to go through the blood-brain barrier and go into the brain. And he says that while you feel relaxed, that's not a good sign. It means that you have a leaky blood-brain barrier, probably leaky gut, and that allows for other elements, uh, you know, pathogens and the like, with uh, a small enough molecular structure to go through the blood-brain barrier, and that's not a good thing. So what he says, is he came up with a test himself uh, out of uh, you know, years of studying, and he tested the hypothesis. 
he mentions I don't I don't exactly remember the, he has new ways of testing for that, uh, but he still mentions the the GABA component. So if you take GABA and you have a leaky gut because the GABA is very, small enough in structure, it will go through the blood-brain barrier, and therefore you have to to assess for inflammation. Now, with regards to the leaky gut, um, the, there are certain tight junctions in your uh, in your intestinal tract that are supposed to remain closed at all times. And that means that there is there are certain organisms, microbiomes, or bacteria that is not supposed to get out of your uh, intestinal tract and into the bloodstream. When you have a leaky gut, well, you have certain tight junctions that open up and that allows for those uh, organisms, so th those bacteria, to exit the the intestinal tract and go to the vagus nerve and that's how they get into the brain so they travel to the vagus nerve and they're small enough to go through the blood-brain barrier and they start attaching themselves to your brain and it is believed in the literature that that's one of the main causes of neurodegeneration um, Alzheimer's Parkinson's uh, what they're thinking now in functional medicine is that Alzheimer's uh, Parkinson start very early on and it has a lot to do with your nutrition and the way you eat and therefore you have to protect your gut from becoming permeable by having a very specific way of eating now what Dr. Karashin mentions is that the most important thing for reduced neuroinflammation in the brain is to have as much variety as you can in the greens in your vegetables if you eat your salads and if you only eat lettuce every day of the week, if you eat only kale every day of the week, if you eat only spinach every day of the week, you're not creating enough variety in your microbiome. And the variety in the microbiome is what uh, helps create a, a less permeable uh, gut and a less permeable brain. So what he recommends in his work is that you vary and you have as much variety of greens in your salads and your food. And that uh, generates greater, the greatest variety in your microbiome, which protects your gut and then protects your brain. Um, with regard to the EEG, um, as Jay always says, the, the EEG is not uh, diagnostically specific and is not specific enough to point to, a, um, to um, a final diagnosis or a final say in, in terms of coming up with, with uh, correlates. But... Anecdotally, what I've seen is that people with leaky guts tend to have certain brainwaves. And this is anecdotally. I mean, I, I haven't done proper research on the subject, but over the years of doing EEGs, if I see somebody with excess uh, theta diffuse amplitudes or excess delta or sometimes even uh, diffuse high beta, I ask them, when you eat... Do you remember times when you eat and you feel bloated? Do you remember feeling bloated? Do you remember feeling gassy? And more often than not, these clients will say, yes, I do. So I explain to them the gut-brain connection and I say, you possibly have a leaky gut, which means you possibly have brain inflammation because your brain waves are possibly pointing in that direction. What you need to do now is to go to uh, uh, the appropriate medical practitioner and get tested for inflammation. 
and functional medicine doctors have specific tests, blood tests and stool tests that you can do to assess your level of inflammation. And um, in the work that I've had with some medical, uh, with some functional medicine practitioners, we've seen correlations between my findings in the EEG and their findings in as far as neuroinflammation goes. Now, this is again anecdotal, anecdotal uh, uh, experience, but I know that there are some people doing research now in the correlates in, in EEG work and, and leaky gut, and, uh, um, and as far as neuroinflammation is concerned. Hey, yeah. hey, guys, a, a, re a report just came out that said if you have mental health issues, you're more than twice as likely to have heart, heart problems. Did you guys hear anything about that, and specifically bipolar and schizophrenic? In, in fact, bipolar disorder and schizophrenia tend to have a variety of patterns, but one of the common things that you see is beta spindling in the EEG. Uh, beta spindling in the EG frontally. Oh, okay. I see it now, yeah. And Mental that, health that can end up double heart disease risk. That, that can end up uh, impacting vagal nerve uh, function, which uh, ends up having uh, control over cardiac function. So uh, that there may be a relationship, but uh, uh, the, you know, the correlation that's reported isn't necessarily causality. Uh, you know, <laughs> Got to keep those two uh, quite separate for sure and then lifestyle maybe as a result of those two disorders would lend itself to poor sleep um, possibly poor living conditions poor socioeconomic status because it's hard to hold a job when you're dealing with these issues which could lead to stress there's vagal nerve issues there too um, it's substance use to just manage some of these symptoms that come along with these mental health disorders is that that is correlated right so yeah um relation maybe not causality as you're saying jay but it, it's you can back your way into believing it right and, yeah. and seeing how it could be the case for sure the uh, the the bad lifestyle and behavioral correlates of schizophrenia are notorious and yeah. and bipolar i mean goodness knows the Bipolar manic runs are yeah, I, I extremely would, uh, damaging. I would second what um, Skip just said in terms of the environment playing a huge, a huge role in that. And I mean, I wouldn't be surprised. One of one of the things that I really do is that I uh, assess for heart rate variability alongside the EEG. Um, and every, every time I record an EEG, I'm recording the, the the EKG at the same time. And one of the first. Um, modalities that I usually train before I even go into the neurofeedback is heart rate variability. Uh, again, you know, there's published research here, but uh, anecdotally you can see the correlation between uh, a, between poor heart rate variability and the client's uh, mental state or, you know, the instability or the irregularities in the EEG. And sometimes this can be nicely corrected with, with HRV biofeedback, heart rate, heart rate variability biofeedback. Um, I, I think lifestyle is very important. Uh, there's three things that I always talk to the clients about. One is exercise, how much exercise they're getting or not getting, because exercise um, has been shown to provide anti-inflammatory mediators in the organism. So it activates the M2 pathways, which are anti-inflammatory, and it, it dampens uh, glia activation and glia priming, or, or at least glia activation. So exercise is very important, 
Um, just recently, my wife works here with mental health swelling research, and uh, she, she showed me a study that here in Singapore, one in three people are at risk of diabetes because of their lifestyle. So one in three people here in Singapore do not exercise, are uh, overworked, uh, are not sleeping well. And, and that's really uh, worrisome if you consider that Singapore has only a population of six million people. I would say that exercise is quite important. Again, your diet, um, and again, for Dr. Dactis Karashin's work, uh, the, the worst diet you can have is the Western diet, the American diet. Research-wise, the ketogenic diet has shown to be the most promising one in terms of reducing neuroinflammation um, and also optimizing um, mental health, or at least help optimize mental health. And then um, sleep is the other one. So sleep, exercise, and nutrition are three components that I it's, that I strongly uh, that I strongly recommend to my clients. That I strongly encourage them to 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 change around, change their diet if they can, if they want to, get more exercise and and get uh, and get better sleep. Along along with that, the first thing I train, as I was saying, is heart rate variability. And I have found that when people strengthen their heart rate variability, they optimize their heart rhythmicity, their EG does change. And it primes the brain for better neurofeedback work. Uh, so irrespective of the, of the age of my client and uh, the, what they want to consult for, what we, what we need to work on, the very first thing I do is always heart rate variability training. I do it for about five to ten sessions, and then I provide them with tools that, that, uh, so they can practice at home. I encourage the practice. I quiz them every now and then, meaning I do uh, you know random surprise inspections to see whether they're practicing their HRV, um, how well they're doing it, if if there's if the changes are being sustained, and I think that's very 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 important. And then, of course, the environment. Um, you know, if, if you do not do everything within your power to change things in your environment, what you do with your interventions can be trumped by that. So uh, the other big element is, are you in a toxic relationship? Are you in a toxic work environment? Are you, in a, uh, are you part of this functional family? If we can remove some of those elements, that's great. Realistically, sometimes you cannot. So what we end up doing is working our way around those issues that are creating more resilience. But uh, I, I do see the, the correlation here between heart disease and mental health and mental health worsening heart disease. The heart and the brain are interconnected. They work together sometimes. They work independently sometimes. And I think understanding that relationship is quite important because if you, if you create a more resilient heart, you can, you can therefore um, get a more resilient brain. If you step back from the attempt to correlate bipolar and schizophrenia with heart problems, uh, uh, open the view a little wider, uh, you, you will find that adverse childhood experiences end up corresponding with later life psychopathology but the ACEs uh, correlation with adverse health outcomes is really striking. Uh, uh, hypertension, heart attacks, cancer, uh, 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 the, the, the correlations were astounding. 
when the first blush of that study came out, they, the, they didn't do the full study yet. The, the full ACEs study was done with a much larger N because when they saw their preliminary data, which had hundreds and hundreds of cases, the, the, the researchers said, well, to make this data believable, we're going to need thousands and thousands of cases. And uh, they, they did a gigantic study and found the correlation between adverse childhood experiences and mental health and physical health later in life. Uh, w when they study the audience of professionals in a, in a lecture, and they've learned about the ACEs uh, exam and the correlation, they then usually uh, allow them to take the ACEs uh, uh, questionnaire. There's a, a 10 question and a 15 question version of it. The ones I've seen were the 10 question at, you know, given to the entire audience. And people can respond digitally and you get the results right away as a survey. And uh, uh, over a third of the people in the audience had enough ACEs positive answers to be classified as having had a traumatic childhood and, and, and likely later life negative health outcomes. So, uh, and that was a professional audience. You, you know, you're, you're not free of uh, uh, potential early life bad experiences just because you're a professional. Uh, but the, uh, the, uh, w when you look at uh, communities that are disadvantaged communities, the percentages go up tremendously higher. Um, you can 60%, 80% of the audience can end up having enough, you know, four or more uh, positive answers puts you in an at-risk uh, category, basically. Uh, I, I was at an event and I, I scored a zero on the ACEs. I felt guilty ever since, you know, so... Um, I had my own weird kind of trauma from having taken the exam and passed it too high, uh, a, a, a curve wrecker, you know. Um, so, uh, uh, but, it, you know, I, I grew up in an idyllic circumstance with a well-to-do family, and uh, 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 when you hear the, the, the horror stories and see the horror of lives that are impacted negatively, uh, it, it puts that kind of a idyllic upbringing into into perspective so. hey jay we we had international women women's day yesterday shout out to all the women out there i always say shouldn't that be a, a day every day what is the difference on an eeg between a male brain and a and a female brain because there's a lot of databases out there where they put them all together but they're different right that's correct um, the first one to have separation between male and female sexes was the Korean database. Uh, they did it based on advice I gave them. I'm glad it worked out that there was differences because it would have been embarrassing having them work an extra three years of data collection to get enough cases to separate male and female. But it turns out that there are striking differences. It's not subtle. It's quite striking. And uh, 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 when you gather enough people together, you can make a comparison between the male and female in a database. There's two age ranges that are more dramatic than other ages. Some of them have subtle differences, but during the developmental trajectory, uh, age four or five, six years old on up to about 12 or 13, that age range has a lot of development going on. 
if you're familiar with little kids um, in, in a school setting, you see the males and females having their maturational surges at different times. And if you get two curves that are out of phase, a, a maturational curve going up and one going down, and you combine these out of phase curves, you get a, 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 a curve that you don't want to be compared to. Uh, so the developmental years have dramatic differences between male and female norms um, that, that are specific. Uh, now, the other dramatic age range is 45 years old to on up. Uh, females light up with fast activity, beta and gamma. And males go pretty silent on fast activity in the same age range as a group. So if you combine, combine a group that has lots of fast activity and a group that has, doesn't have much of any fast activity, you get some fast activity. As a female, you're being compared to a, a lower than you should be compared to, and as a male, you're being compared to a standard you, you can't achieve. So um, you know, separating the sexes uh, into separate norms ends up making very good sense for seniors and also for kids. Uh, 20, 30, 40 years old, there's not a dramatic difference. There's more difference in connectivity than there is in power at that age uh, age range. Uh, but you have to consider that the male brain and the female brain have different uh, uh, structures on the average. Males have, on the average, a larger brain with a bigger left hemisphere. So we all swell with pride. Oh, we have a bigger left hemisphere. Um, females have a well-developed uh, extremely well connected corpus callosum. Males have a spindly little thing. We should have colossal envy. And, you know, uh, the, uh, the connectivity that goes through the corpus callosum ends up being a, 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 a gigantic difference between male and female. And uh, so uh, coherence and, uh, and connectivity measurements end up having different norms. Um, uh, uh, and uh, again, especially in fast frequencies in senior years, um, you, you've got uh, uh, significantly different norms, and you really should have a different uh, uh, database. Uh, the old databases don't have enough people in them to split them into two, so you can't end up with a valid comparison by just taking all the males out and separating them from all the females in, a, in an older database. Uh, if you have only 700 to 1,000 people in a norms, you cut that down to 350, 450, uh, 500 uh, people. It's not enough to create the the uh, the, the uh, groups uh, across age ranges with enough people to populate them. So it's it's not just a simple oh just split your norms into two piles and you've got it. You have to collect an entire database worth of people for male and another entire database full of people with female with enough people to populate each age range. So it's, and it's expensive. The cheapest database I ever heard about was the Russian and Swiss database. Yuri Kropotov sent a Russian uh, tech to Switzerland to collect the data and uh, the, the tech stayed in, the, in uh, Andy Mueller's house and uh, was paid Russian wages, and it cost him about a million bucks. Well, a, a thousand people, and, and you know, it, how, how do you get a thousand people for a million bucks? Well, uh, you do it cheaply. Uh, it, it, it's uh, it's expensive to hire somebody to do the collection, 
uh, and then to hire somebody to process it and and analyze it. So uh, they got away at a thousand dollars. The Koreans were funded for millions and millions of dollars by the Korean government for over a decade of data collection before they had enough data to actually have their database. So uh, you know, it's it's not quick and easy or cheap to end up collecting more norms. Um, it, it's actually quite a task. You don't just ask your old college buddies to have your EEGs hooked up or something. I mean, uh, I, I, I saw a, a, a lecture uh, being given, and everybody in the audience was told to raise their hand. And as soon as you didn't qualify uh, for a database feature by failing one of the criteria, you had to put your hand down. It wasn't all that long before nobody in this audience of professionals had their hands up as qualifying for a normative database. You know, so it's, <laughs> it's, it's not easy to get people with clean health records and good schoolwork and no history of trauma. Uh, 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 the, the Koreans actually look back at family history of psychiatric issues um, it, uh, they had a, a very, very clean scrub of their data. Um, so uh, uh, it's important to end up identifying female-male differences. Uh, They're quite striking in early age and later life and, uh, the, and connectivity. And again, if anything, uh, the, the males shouldn't swell with pride because they've got a little bit larger head. Um, uh, the, the, the females have us beat when it comes to connectivity and, and the corpus callosum is again something we should have envy of hey, let's take a break in the action to tell you about the Super Brain Summit at Bradley University you can check it out online at bradley.edu slash superbrainsummit it's happening this April 8th featured speaker will be Dr. Bruce Wexler an international expert on digital neurotherapeutics and he's a psychiatrist at Yale School of Medicine. Hey, visit the brain cave. Walk through the brain using Oculus Quest. How cool. Check it out April 8th. Bradley.edu slash Summit. Okay, guys, I'm going to read one email that, uh, that we have here. Uh, hi, Pete. Here's a recent publication of an EEG that was captured while a man was dying of cardiac arrest. I'd like to hear a review of the EEG patterns that were measured and what utility they may have in neurofeedback. It provides a link. It says, by the way, I always enjoy the diverse musical selections you have in your intros. All right. No name attribution if you choose to use my prompt on the show. Okay, Nameless, is there anything we want to address on this one, guys? Yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, the it, it's... It's one thing to have something published. It's another thing to have something published that's really meaningful and tries to answer the question that's, that the, the headline kind of claims. And they're, they're basically saying that the end of life uh, can have a, a big resurgent uh, power and some memory, you know, review your life before you, before you pass. Um, yeah. But it was a really flawed uh, study. First of all, the person had bilateral subdural hematomas. Uh, how do you get that? Well, significant head trauma or really chronic alcoholism or a little of both. Uh, so this wasn't a normal person in the first place. There was subdural hematomas. 
uh, was so bad that they actually re evacuated a subdural from one of the hemispheres, not the other, but one. So there was brain surgery. Um, and then the person had status epilepticus, which is an ongoing, unrelenting seizure discharge. And the seizure discharge was obviously stopped, so they had to give anticonvulsants. Normally, uh, they'll inject a diazepam or Ativan uh, IV to stop an acute seizure. Well, this is not a normal person uh, passing. Then you're just observing the brain as somebody normal passes. This is somebody who's got severe medical problems, epileptiform content, uh, significant medication, uh, and at that point the heart stopped, and they they observed changes after the heart stopped. I've done recordings where people had a heart stop. Uh, I've recorded. Uh, and process data from hospitals where they were recording and the person's heart stopped. So we've actually got EEG data. Uh, we don't have to go to a flawed case to try to illustrate what the end stage of the EEG does. If your heart stops, your brain's going to have hypoxia and anoxia. That creates glutamate cascade and cell death. Glutamate's an excitatory neurochemical. You're going to have a, a, a surge of activity because of the glutamate cascade as the cells are dying. There's chemical processes that are going on. After the brain goes flat for a short bit of time, you quite often get gigantic bursts of hundreds and hundreds of microvolts, up to 1,000 microvolts of discharge, gigantic slow activity, followed by flat spots burst suppression patterns. A burst suppression pattern has a, a, a grave prognosis. Um, you, that's where you're going to end up. It's, a, it's an end-state brain pattern. Uh, and and it, it, it happens when the brain is dying, not in a healthy person as a, a finding. So uh, uh, this, this is something that's expected to occur. Occasionally, someone will lapse out of that into what's called an alpha coma. There the brain is unresponsive uh, to s sensory inputs, and there's alpha in the front, uh, more prominent by far than the alpha in the back. And again, they don't respond to sensory input. This isn't like open your eyes and alpha attenuates in the back of your head. This is alpha that's unrelenting frontally, and it's associated with a, a person in a coma, alpha coma. Sometimes theta coma, which is slowed alpha. It's not a separate kind of a pattern. It's just the person's alpha slowed dramatically. Uh, but the alpha coma also is a grave prognosis. It's an end state pattern uh, that happens just before somebody passes. Uh, you can expect if they have an alpha coma uh, that, that they're likely to pass. So um, uh, I, I would suggest that the, uh, the EG study that was quoted is a flawed study. It does show uh, for that person that there was a resurgent energy uh, prior to passing, but that if if you look at the EG of somebody who's about to pass the burst suppression and the glutamate cascade, you expect excitatory, uh, a gigantic process. Um, is it, is uh, that what happened to Bob Saget? Um, I, I, you know, Bob had a fall 
apparently hit his head badly, had an epidural bleed, and you can die within hours of an epidural bleed. Now he had a lot of bony fractures uh, yeah. that are that are uh, for some people suspicious, but. Uh, falling from an upright position to the back of your head, you can fracture the front of your face. Um, and uh, he had uh, eye socket fractures and so forth, uh, which you'd think, well, he had been beat up. But again, uh, uh, from an upright stance to the back of your head, you can fracture the, the skull and it, it, it deforms the structure and you get fractures that are distant to the location of the trauma. And apparently he got up and went to bed. And, uh, an, again, an epidural, you have to treat the epidural immediately, if not sooner. And uh, uh, within an hour or so, you can pass for an epidural. Uh, you're lucky if you last much longer than that, um, uh, 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 an epidural. A subdural hematoma can be chronic and, and present for years. Uh, it's not a good thing to have. Negatively influences the brain underneath if it's pressing on the brain. Uh, so... Um, well, I'm bringing it up, Jay, because one of the ladies on The View, they fell down, and because of Bob Saget, she's like, you know what, I'm not messing around. I'm going to go in and get this thing checked out. We can't make any diagnosis on here. I get it. But if you fall down, like, when should you go to the doctor, right? Because now everybody's looking at, oh, I had a spill. I better go to the emergency room. When, What, what should, be, should you be looking for? When in doubt, have yourself checked out. Uh, but uh, as a general rule, very young kids can have trauma to the head. Their brains are all puffy and young and fresh. Um, they don't flop around like old guys like me. If you've got cortical atrophy, there's some space up there and the brain can jog around. If you're 60 plus years old and you've had any significant kind of a head injury at all, you should have it checked out because you, it, you're more likely to tear a blood vessel on the surface uh, when you're old than when you're young. It's got to be a much more severe blow for a young person. Uh, that said, again, when in doubt, have it checked out. There's no harm in going to an emergency room and saying, I had a head injury, can you check this out? If you got a pupil asymmetry, they'll run you straight in for an MRI. If you don't have any sign whatsoever, uh, they'll, they'll check your reflexes and whatnot and uh, 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 unless there's some kind of a symptom of some sort, they'll probably dust you off, uh, patch up the scraped knee and whatever, and send you on home. Um, but it's all too often that they don't. Um, uh, I, I wrote up uh, a, 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 a published article called the Serendipity and the Subdural Hematoma. And uh, I, I basically spoke to my father on the phone close to Christmas time and he was in Arizona he had gone back to Fargo don't you know uh, but I, I spoke to him on the phone and I realized you know he's not really fully understanding what I'm saying so Wernicke is involved and he can't really find words and speak so lateral frontal and a little bit of speech motor area is involved and I'm coming up with this idea of how big the change in brain function is and it's gigantic, the whole side of his head, basically. And I, uh, um, I realized he fell in Fargo on the ice. They stitched his eyebrow and x-rayed his arm, but they didn't CT his head. And when I'm speaking to him, I, I tell him, you know, put mom on the phone. I, I typed an email and sent it. 
uh, uh, telling them you've got to take this email and go to the ER. Uh, I got a phone call from my mother from the uh, who told me to call the hospital. I called the hospital. They passed me to the surgeon's headset. He's draining 160 cc's out of his head. And think 160 cc's, that is a fist-sized pool of blood inside of your head. And there's no room in there for that. So it compressed his brain in a really extreme distorted way. The center midline was two centimeters to the right uh, because of the size of the blood pooling on the left side. I've never seen anybody with anything that big live. I've seen people die with a, a subdural much smaller than that. If it's higher up on the brain, it presses down, you herniate the brain stem, and that's what kills you. Um, this one was on the side. It pressed the brain laterally, and, and again, it was miraculous. Now, the surgeon wanted to know, how do you diagnose a subdural hematoma and tell me exactly how big it is on the phone? And I said, well, you don't. You use a CT or an MRI. Um, you know, I, I, I just hang out with neurological folks too much and uh, it was it was a good guess uh, educated guess is all it was and uh, you know it, it, it turned out to be correct at my father's CT scan so this is his first one and for those of you, uh, and I've reversed this, so this is left and this is right. Normally, CT scans and MRIs are reversed. Uh, uh, but I wanted to show this to my siblings. And if you see something on the left, you've got to think it's on the left. Um, uh, so the MRIs and CT scans are all flipped. Uh, so I flipped the image uh, so that they could see it kind of as you intuitively view it. Um, uh, I, I'm... I'm going to do some very bad art here. Um, the midline of the brain should be at the midline. It's all the way over here. And it should be down the middle. This is about a two centimeter deviation to the right. And this kind of half a wing of a butterfly should have another one over here. Uh, so we're missing the ventricles, the fluid-filled cavities on the left side. They've been squished. Additionally, on the right side, you can see the gyri, the, the bulges, and the sulci, the dips. And the, that's these are more normal. The, the brain normally has uh, you know, uh, curvature and, and dips in between. On the left side, everything is squished flat by the pressure. The amount of volume that's in this uh, is just about like having a fist size volume stuck inside of your head. You can imagine putting a hand underneath the skull on that side and occupying this much area. So he had fallen about Thanksgiving, you know, I, I grew up in Fargo and it gets a little slippery back there about that time of year, icy, and he got out of the car and whoopsie-doo, kablunk, down onto the ground. And he's in his early 80s. And, you know, he hurt his arm and 
they went to the hospital. They got a nice hospital system in Fargo and um, they x-rayed his arm because they thought he might hurt that. And, and they stitched up his eyebrow because he had hit his head. But they didn't see Tia's head, which is actually a mistake. If you're a kid and you have a little nick, big deal generally. But as a senior, your brain has atrophied normally. The normal senior brain atrophies some. So it's got a little more room to flop around. And when you fall and stop your skull suddenly, the brain can bounce around in there and tear a vessel. So bleeds in brains on seniors with falls are very common, much more common. So this gigantic pool of blood over on the side here had accumulated over five weeks. And during that five-week period, um, you know, he was having some difficulty with speech. But, you know, he's in his 80s and, you know, uh, he... He, he he's uh, like a lot of males, you know, you, you don't want to be the zebra that sticks out in the flock or the, the they're going to get you. So he, he oh, no, I'm fine. I'm fine. You know, like he, he I called him on the phone near Christmas time and he fell near Thanksgiving is weeks later. And he couldn't really fully understand me. He could kind of, but not really. And he couldn't speak well. He couldn't find words. And, you know, uh, he, he was very verbally fluent uh, in his days. So it was really striking to me. And at first I thought, oh, he's got a stroke. And then I no, it's not behaving like a stroke. And then I thought, oh my God, he fell in Thanksgiving. This has to be a slow growing subdural hematoma. And I wrote an email and I told my dad to put my mom on the phone. I told her to print the email and take him straight to the hospital uh, because um, I thought he had a bleed in his brain. And about an hour and a half or so later, I got a phone call from my mom and she says, this is the phone number the doctor wants to speak to you. I call him on, and they pass me through to his headset. He's in surgery and uh, in, in the surgery uh, basically, he's uh, draining out the 160 cc's of blood. And that's a lot of volume. Uh, once it was drained out, um, basically, they had to drill two holes, one further forward, one further back. Uh, and, you know, it's uh, shaved half of his head, which was quite a fashion statement for somebody in his 80s, you know, uh, white hair on one side and shaved on the other, you know, uh, uh, Hollywood, you know. Um, but the, uh, they, the next day they did a CT scan and it was starting to fill back up. He had 60 cc's or so that had filled back in. And uh, so he said, uh, we've got to put in a shunt to drain the blood from the head down into the abdomen like a VP shunt for the ventricles, only this is a hematoma shunt. It's a big fat tube. So uh, they, they put the shunt in and they wheeled them down. They, they do a CT scan afterwards to show the shunt placement and everything. And at this point, the doctor is getting the CT scans dispatched to his office electronically and has them dispatched to me at the same exact time. So I get this 
the CT scan of supposedly the shunt being have having been placed. I'm scanning up and down and back and forth through the brain, expecting to see either a circle because the slice would go through it or a longer piece because it might go along it. But I don't see the shunt. And there's a, a CT of the entire body, and I see the, the entire shunt is down in his abdomen. The phone rings about the same moment as the neurosurgeon. And, and I said, the shunt's in his belly. And the, the neurosurgeon says, I know, I can't believe it. You know, um, we'll go in tomorrow and we'll put it you know, back in. I don't know how this happened. You know, really sorry. But, uh, and I said, well, you know, Doc, humor me. He's an old man. He doesn't need lots and lots of surgeries in his 80s. And, you know, it's, it was a slow refill. And you had just taken out 160-something cc's, and the brain had to move back into place, and nothing had sealed up, and you got a little bit of blood back. And you drained that out. It might have sealed. We may not have to put the shunt in. And... He said, well, I suppose we could wait an extra day and see. And sure enough, it wasn't filling. Uh, so he said, well, we can take the shunt out of his belly. And I said, well, I'll leave it in unless it bothers him. So uh, uh, when he died at 90, he still had a shunt in his belly. So, um, But let's, let's look at uh, uh, some of the uh, – let me clear my bad art out of the way here. Um, let's – Look at some of the other images uh, here. Um, this is when the 60 cc's had come in. You could see one of the burr holes. Oh wow! That, uh, through the skull, uh, and and this, and you can see that the the cortex is starting to get the gyri and sulci back, and uh, the the midline is still a little screwy. Uh, but uh, it's it's got a little bit of something off to the side here. Um, the ventricles back coming back too. Yeah, a little. Now I think this this was written up in in a journal. There you see half half a head of hair. <laughs> uh, this is his uh, surgical intervention uh, at those two locations. God damn. And what really upset him most is that it took him away from Sunday football. <laughs> uh, uh, and he, he was reluctant to go to the hospital Saturday night um, uh, because, you know, if something was discovered, it would goof up Sunday football. So he still has priorities. <laughs> anyway, um, uh, the, the, the images were uh, professionally published within a journal. Uh, the, the article is called Serendipity and the Subdural Hematoma because we found it by accident, basically. So, saved his life. <laughs> so. Jay, to that, to that point, it, and Laura might say the same if, if, um, if she could talk about her practice too, but I see people weekly that have had negative scans, you know, CT or MRI, and, you know, here they are coming yep. to seek out, you know, folks like Laura and I. Because functioning just has not recovered. And we're talking yep. years. It wasn't like, and, and by the way, Alaska, people fall on the ice too, a lot. And, you know, you have multiple falls on the ice. And then, you know, you have a bad winter where you fell down four times. And then the next, you know, spring, summer, they're seeing us. But everything's clean. So when you say, I think I know the answer. But when you say, hey, you know, when in doubt, get it checked out. 
I guess what I'm wondering is, like, what else can we do to assess folks besides CTMRI? CTRMRI will catch the major bleeds, and those right. are the things that will kill you. Uh, if it's concussion, your brain is going to swell in the area. It's going to compress the blood vessels in the area, but it's, which causes ischemia, but it's not an ischemic stroke. If you had uh, an ischemic stroke, they would spot that. What they see is nonspecific perimetricular white matter change uh, that are it's associated with concussions. Uh, those aren't the kind of things that they end up calling on the MRI. Uh, they would basically identify the more serious bleeds on the MRI or CT scan. And that's what you have to catch. Uh, a concussion, uh, the, you know, the stats are about 10% of the people are gonna, that have a concussion are going to have a longer standing complaint. But usually six to nine months, most of the symptoms will clear. But if you've got a significant ischemia, it will show up in the EEG. The slow edge of alpha ends up tracking ischemia. So if you have an alpha peak at 10 and the tail of alpha as it's tapering down sticks into the theta band and it's local, uh, it's not just a generally slowed alpha. You've got a local slow alpha location. That's likely ischemic change. And again, uh, you, you can see that with the EEG. Uh, in 1997, the American Academy of Neurology wrote a position paper that most people think is like negative for QEG. Now, the position paper was strongly against TBI QEG, but that position paper has been dismissed. It's, uh, at this point, the author of it said you can't use it for anything other than historical reference. You can't use it as a scientific reference. But in it, before the dismissal of, of TBI-related content, they talked about cerebrovascular uh, issues, and they, they concluded that the QEG was more sensitive than the visual analysis of the EEG because it could show the slow edge of alpha better. You can see it with the Q. It's usually missed uh, by simple visual uh, interpretation. Um, uh, they also basically conclude that, uh, that the... Uh, uh, th that the studies that support the use of the QEG for ischemia detection and cerebrovascular issues is is really quite strong. A lot of the studies are prospective and blinded, not just a retrospective study. Um, and uh, a good power for the studies. Um, uh, uh, so they, they basically concluded it was good for ischemia detection. Critical Care Medicine has published uh, review articles supporting the use of QEG for detection of ischemia and tracking ischemia during treatment in hospitals. So uh, uh, I, I would say that the QEG is actually one of the better uh, ways to identify uh, post-traumatic ischemic change, uh, pr a, pr a prolonged uh, problem that may occur uh, because of the uh, head injury. The same ischemia is seen with inflammatory problems post-COVID, uh, so it's nonspecific. Uh, we can't say how you got the ischemia. Migraine ischemia looks the same as post-traumatic ischemia. The distributions may differ. I mean, post-traumatic is more likely frontotemporal. Um, posterior temporal bilateral is migraine pattern. So um, we, we can make guesses about the etiology, but we can spot the ischemia for sure. We just don't know what kind it is until we do the, the historical correlation. Well, hy hy hyperbole in, in uh, action here. I think Laura and I see 100% of those 10% of 
folks yep. with persistent, right, long-term yep. symptoms. They, they seem to wind their way into offices. So Z-Score's training in regards to neurofeedback is, you know, it, it's based on databases, and, and that's fine because you have to have a, a, a you know, air quotes norm to train to. And I don't know, maybe it's just Laura and I, but I think it's part of our training too and looking at stats and all that. Like it's so easy to poke holes in Z-score training or, or database training, right? And, and not to throw anybody under the bus here. I know all kinds of folks get uh, all kinds of benefit from it. It seems the more nuanced or, or ad ad adaptive training, training to symptomology works best. And it's, it's a rough analogy here, but Z-score training feels like a greatest hits album where, you know, getting into doing full neurofeedback and training to symptoms feels like understanding the entire body of work of a band you really like, you know? It's like you're just getting into it a little bit more. But what, just opinion, I guess, but can you speak to maybe effectiveness, too, of, of Z-score training? I'm not going to throw it out. I know it's a lot of hard work and it's valuable to have databases, but... If you got two people over 80 and that's your Z-score that you're training to, it's like, all right, hopefully those guys are okay. Right. Yeah. You know, not every outlier in a database ends up being abnormal. It could be abnormal if it's a statistical right. outlier, but it could be a unique comp uh, compensatory mechanism. Uh, in, in some people that have epilepsy, you see an excess of SMR. In some people that have a tick, they have an excess of SMR. But that excess of SMR is an attempt to stabilize, and if you get rid of it, they get worse. Uh, a, a compensatory mechanism is like carrying crutches. If you take a picture of somebody carrying crutches, it's not normal to carry crutches. You think, oh, uh, you know, they, they broke a leg or something. Uh, uh, so it's an abnormality, but it's a compensatory abnormality. Don't take the crutches away until you fix the legs, you know. So um, uh, the, there, there are Z-scores that you don't want to get rid of. And a very competent user of Z-score training will select which Z-scores they wish to train, and they'll avoid getting rid of a, an SMR that might be in excess. Uh, the other thing is that might be a, a special skill. Uh, unique skill sets exist in outlier individuals, and those individuals don't want to lose their unique skills. They may have something they need to have treated, but they the, their, their outlier skill is, is a unique skill. I, I do lectures, have for years. Um, uh, my background alpha is way too fast. Uh, it sticks out as a sore thumb in a database evaluation. Uh, alpha peak at 13 hertz. Well, what the hell would you want a fast alpha for? Well, it's really good for semantic and declarative memory. So pulling factoids out of your butt while you're talking <laughs> comes up as a really good skill when you're a lecturer. Uh, you could normalize me, and I could have a nine and a half, ten hertz alpha peak, like I do in my left frontal area. That's got a little ischemic change already happening. I've got a ten hertz normal alpha there. I find it to be difficult for word finding and verbal fluency at ten hertz compared to my thirteen hertz. You could attend my ten hertz lecture, but I'd be, ah, what was the name of that guy? What was that study? You know, I, I wouldn't be the same lecturer. So you could fix my too fast to be normal alpha, but I wouldn't like that. I would see that as a loss of skill. Um, it would be normalizing, 
But if you're an A student, Norm's a C student. You don't want to be a C student. If you're flunking, Norm's look awfully good. You know, uh, if if I'm failing, you know, hands down, left and right and, and, and center, everything's uh, uh, failing, uh, a Z-score Norm is going to look like Kevin. But not everybody has uh, everything that's an outlier is an abnormality. So if you find something that's abnormal, it's like an F student or a D student, C looks pretty good, go for it. Um, the other thing is, you know, uh, we, we've gotten more software development to give us more data, but we don't have as much knowledge as data, yeah. and we sure as hell don't have enough wisdom yet. So um, the, it's like a food pyramid. Uh, a gigantic amount of data is the base, um, but we need knowledge about what the base is. So our understanding of the Z-scores and everything is eclipsed by the amount of data that we can spew. Um, um, the actual research on efficacy looked at published studies, efficacy studies, and they found good efficacy studies for theta-beta ratio training, for SMR training. The, the more routine, old-fashioned training had good efficacy studies. Loretta, not Zisco Loretta, but Loretta had studies that showed it can work. It didn't have lots of clinical applications, but it showed that Loretta training could work. Uh, Z-score training, the literature was published in, in predatory journals. And if you're publishing in a good journal, you can't quote a, pub, a predatory journal article. So the meta-analysis that was done by Martine Arns and, and, and all, I mean, it's a, it's a large study, uh, basically came up with a conclusion that um, the old-fashioned stuff has good efficacy uh, studies behind it. Uh, Z-score, Loretta Z-score, uh, those basically don't have the publications yet. Uh, the claims are there, the supportive publications aren't. This is not an unusual circumstance in neurofeedback. We've had, you know, uh, uh, clinical experience and claims based on that before there was published support for it for years. So it's not an unusual circumstance, but if you're looking for literature to support Z-score training, you're going to have to dig into journals that are less than stellar journals. Uh, again, the, the, the meta-analysis basically complained that, listen, I, we'd, we'd like to be able to point to those studies, but they're in journals that our journals won't let us quote. Um, look to Beale's list of predatory journals. Don't publish there. You know, if, if it's listed as a predatory journal. Now, how do you know it's predatory? They probably contacted you. Right. You know, oh, Skip, would you like to publish in our journal article about whatever you're doing? And by the way, you could sit on our editorial board. That's a predatory journal. Uh, uh, the uh, Respectable journals don't uh, solicit articles in that way uh, uh, as a blind cold call, you know. Um, uh, the uh, they, they have uh, respectable people approaching them. They don't have to go out uh, tapping people on the shoulder and uh, uh, publish in a respectable. If you go to the trouble of, of uh, actually writing something up, go to the trouble of looking up who's going to publish it and make sure it doesn't go into a place that's just a, a wastebasket. Sufficient literature to, to uh, claim efficacy. Now, uh, again, it's not an unusual circumstance to have uh, uh, clinical experience 
making uh, uh, advice that we can probably treat that uh, with this technique. It's just that there's not enough uh, peer-reviewed publication in a respectable journal yet. Um, and uh, in a perfect world, we would wave a magic wand and have all the literature done in a in a, a high-level journal. But uh, uh, try to publish something in a high-level journal sometime. Uh, <laughs> the, there's listservs uh, 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 talking about reviewer number two. Uh, um, apparently, reviewer number one's always nice, but reviewer number two is really a jerk. So, uh, and long listserv complaints about reviewers, and uh, it, it, it's not easy to get in a good journal. But that's where you need to publish. Uh, if they accept it and uh, want editorial change, uh, please go ahead and go through the work to. Uh, 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 update your uh, manuscript uh, uh, to a submittable uh, uh, circumstance. Uh, uh, sometimes the science is perfect, but it's just the way it's written. Um, uh, uh, Dirk DeRitter uh, uh, published in, uh, in the New England Journal of Medicine an out-of-body experience, the, uh, the neuroscience of out-of-body experience, November 2007. And he had submitted it twice previously and had it rejected out of hand no comment whatsoever just sent straight back you know, re rejection letter uh, and, and uh, he asked me about the publication um, I said it's great science uh, but I can tell you're European from the syntax the sentence structure and I rewrote the paper uh, overnight handed it back to him on a thumb drive he submitted it it was accepted with no editorial change and there wasn't an iota of science changed. It was just the sentence structure. So, uh, um, you know, sometimes when they say get a native uh, English speaker, um, uh, it, it just goes in uh, uh, perfectly. Uh, so don't, don't, don't be disheartened if you get a, uh, an acceptance with editorial changes. Make the changes. It, it, it improves the article. Another great show, guys. We thank you all for listening to NeuroNerdles, Neurofeedback, and Neuropsychology Podcast. We'd like to thank our Patreon business supporters and our show sponsors. Mary Tracy's Neurotraining Strategies offers a higher standard of EEG, QEEG education to EEG clinicians, technicians, and neurofeedback practitioners with convenient online BCIA and QEEG certified didactic courses. Register now at eegstrategies.com slash course hyphen neuro. Check out the 6th Annual Super Brain Summit this April 8th at Bradley University, featuring Dr. Bruce Wexler, a psychiatrist at Yale Medical School. He will discuss neurotherapeutics, how can we regulate the brain with computers. Register at bradley.edu slash superbrainsummit. If you have an idea for a topic or guest, please email me, Pete, at neuronoodle.com, or leave a voicemail with the link in the podcast notes. Please give us five stars on Apple Podcasts and subscribe to our YouTube channel. And hey, if you really, really like us, you can always buy us a coffee on Patreon slash Neuronoodle. We love our Patreon peeps. Cue the music. <laughs>